time of his disciples. He's constantly doing this all the time. And we just see earlier on in the chapter, he graciously feeds 5,000 and gives them all a feast. And then he tells them to get into a boat, even though they knew, most likely because they were experienced fishermen, that, hey, it looks like there's a storm coming. We don't want to get caught out in the middle of this lake, which is exactly what happens to them. And so in one, in one essence, Jesus will bless us tremendously. And then, and then in another essence, it looks like Jesus will do something that is a puzzle or a mystery to us. Why is this so? Why is this so? Well, this, this makes sense because, listen to me, because Jesus is Lord of all. He's not just Lord of blessing over here. He is Lord of every, everything. And there is a symmetry to the person and work of Jesus that makes us feel uncomfortable, right? Uh, it, it, whenever there's hard passages that we don't, like, Jesus, what were you up to there? Why this scenario? Why the thorn in the flesh to Paul? Why am I going through this? Why miscarriages? Why cancer? Why triple bypasses? Why, why all of these things? Whenever things get uncomfortable to us, we have to realize that Jesus isn't just Lord of, Lord of joy. He's also Lord of the storm. And that's really my question to us today. My question to us today is what is at the bedrock of your worldview? What is at the bedrock of your worldview? Because as the disciples were interacting and engaging with Jesus, what was happening is the paradigm of their worldview was constantly breaking up, and they were reordering it, at least 11 out of the 12, they were reordering it to, fi to, to filter through everything through the person and work of what Jesus was doing. You see, Jesus turned into a, a form of spectacles that they put on to where they saw everything through. And Christianity gives us truths, listen, uh, it, gives us, it doesn't just give us truths, but it, we must see these truths as more than just truths. We must see everything through the lens of Jesus. We must see everything through the lens of Jesus. And this is hard for us, right? This is hard for us because a lot of us, are, our, normal, our normative worldview is just something that we adopted. It's something that we adopted whenever we were just growing up. It just began to form at like a Lego set that you just started kind of building and building and building and building. And then all of a sudden you got, okay, I guess this is my life. This is my life. My parents were this way. I was treated this way. This is how I interact with money. This is how I intera interact with my, my family. This is how I interact with other people. Maybe you have siblings. Maybe you don't. And a worldview starts to stack up. And then what happens whenever we're introduced to Jesus is we start filtering our worldview through Jesus. And we try to understand Jesus through the lens of our worldview. But that is not how Jesus will be had. That's not how we're supposed to engage with the Lord. Jesus is like a, a, a pair of binoculars that we're supposed to see the entire world through. We're supposed to see the entire world through this. Because the disciples understood that he was a paradigm shifter. He was the way that the world, um, the, the world had to be seen through. And Christ is the truth through which they saw all other truths. And whenever you, put, whenever you put on and I put on the lens of Jesus, what happens is the chaoticness of this world becomes to uh, come into sharper focus whenever we have him Lord of all, not just Lord over the things that we understand. So, Here's the, here's the main point of the day. 
Jesus isn't just Lord of the feast. He isn't just Lord of joy, which we've talked a lot about uh, over the past year. But he is also Lord of the storm. And so how do you know that he's Lord of the storm through this passage? Three things that we see today. It's three things that we see that Jesus is holy, that Jesus is powerful, and that Jesus is a teacher. He sees three things, and these three things will teach us that he is actually Lord of the storm. First off, what do we recognize in this passage? Is we recognize that the disciples were not scared of the storm. They were experienced fishermen. I'm sure Peter, James, John, the, the sons of Zebedee, all the fishermen that were a part of this crew, they were just like, guys, chill out. We've been in this scenario before. Uh, nothing to be afraid of here. I, I've seen these swells before. We can handle it. We can, we, we can do it. We've seen in other passages, uh, specifically Luke 8, there is some storms that they get terrified of. Um, whenever, especially whenever Jesus was in the boat and he's like, what are you afraid of? I'm here. But uh, that's not this passage. Notice when they get afraid. They get afraid whenever they see Jesus. They get afraid whenever they actually see Jesus. And this, is, this isn't just because they were jumpy. They're like, oh, Jesus, okay, there you are. No, no that, that wasn't what was going on. They were terrified because they saw Jesus walking on the water. And when they saw this sight uh, in the middle of the wind and the waves and the dark, they realized that Jesus is no ordinary man. That there's something, something totally different. That they were in the presence of the supernatural. That the, guy, that the guy that they've been walking around with saying is the Messiah is something totally different. He broke up their paradigm once again of who is this man. Because when it, it doesn't say it in this passage, but in Mark and Matthew, whenever it gives a recounting of this, they thought they saw a ghost. They thought they saw a ghost, but when they saw him walking on the water, they thought they saw a ghost and they were terrified. And this is normal, right? This is normal. We see this sometimes with kids and like, oh, like, tell me a ghost story or tell me a story about this or, or something like that. And then you tell them a ghost story and then they are in your room all night long, like recounting that. He's like, why did you tell me that story? That was dumb. Like, mom, dad, what were you thinking? That was irresponsible. He's like, you begged me um, to, to tell you. And so what do we see here? We see that they were terrified whenever they're in the presence of the supernatural. And that's what they recognized. That's what they recognized about Jesus. And in this terror, Jesus decides to intervene. And look how he intervenes. He addresses them. And in verse 20, it says this. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, what's really, really interesting about this is grammatically it makes sense. Uh, this makes sense to our ears whenever we see, whenever we hear Jesus saying this. It is I, do not be afraid. He was just saying, hey, it's me, Jesus, don't be afraid. But that's not actually what he said. It's not actually what he said. It literally says, when translated into English, he, he says in Greek, uh, ego ime. Ego ime, which says, I am, do not be afraid. And there was another time in the Bible that someone saw some supernatural things going on. Saw a lot of supernatural things going on, and they heard the word ego ime, I am. It was Moses in the burning bush. Do you remember all the way back whenever we went through our series in Exodus, whenever Moses was looking at the burning bush, he was in the desert, burning bushes apparently weren't that uncommon. He saw it, it caught on fire. He was like, oh, that thing's on fire. 
It'll be out in like three seconds. It's, it's, it's a desert. It's going to burn up really fast. And then he looked at it and he saw it again. And he saw it again. And he saw it again. So much so that he went and he took his herd and he went over there to say, why is this bush not burning up? And whenever he got into the presence of the supernatural, what did God say? What did Yahweh say? Uh, Moses, you are on holy ground. I am Yahweh, which means I am the great I am. What does it mean? What does it mean for God to say that I am? Why is this such a big deal? It, it means that he is unchanging. Why is God unchanging? He's unchanging because he's perfect. There's no room for improvement with God. He's, not, he's unchanging because he's holy. He's unchanging because he's sovereign. He's unchanging because he actually has a plan, and it's going, it's going according to his way. It's unchang, he's unchanging because he's all-powerful. He's the uncreated one, dependent on nothing. There was never a time where God was. He has always been I am. And this is, our, this is our God. Everything that exists from the invisible to the visible exists because the great I am spoke it into being. And whenever Moses saw this, whenever Moses saw the burning bush and realized that he was standing on holy ground and he heard the bush say that I am the great I am, he hit the deck. He fell on his knees. He bowed down in worship. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 14, 30, 32, which is the retelling, Matthew's um, version of this event, it says, and when they got into the boat and the wind ceased, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. They were terrified, but their terror then turned into worship. And, and the disciples' response gives us a principle that I want to point out today. Whenever we are in the presence of the great I am, the principle is this. We want to be near God because we're made, made in the image of God, but we're also afraid to be near God. Isn't this your experience? Christian, look at me in this room. Don't you want to be near God, but aren't you a little afraid to be near God? Why? Why? We all want to be near God because we want to experience his blessing. We want to have, um, ha have his meaning, his purpose. We want to see the, the lens of everything through the rest of the world through Jesus. But anytime someone got near God in the Bible, they, they didn't say, you know what, I just, I just need a little bit more of this. Remember Isaiah? In Isaiah, in, in chapter 6, he says, here am I, send me. I, I, I'll go. But whenever he got into the presence of the Lord, what did he say? Depart from me. Man, I, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. You have to depart from me. I know that your holiness is going to destroy me. I know it. You see, he, yeah, he raised his hand. He wanted to be in it. But as soon as he got in it, he said, I can't stand it. I've got to get out of this. And Peter, Peter does the exact same thing. Peter uh, gets an encounter with Jesus. Re remember whenever he called him to himself? And he said, I, hey, Peter, uh, why don't you uh, throw your net over there? And he's like, who are you, dude? Who are you? I've been fishing all night, and I've caught absolutely nothing. He's like, just do what I say. So he does what he says, and then the greatest catch of fish that he has ever seen as a fisherman that sinks his boat, calls his neighbor over, sinks his boat. This is a ton of fish whenever he was just like, I, whenever he's just pulling them up, and he's a fisherman. He could have seen if the fish were actually there. He could have seen it. But then, but then what happens? God, this is great. 
man, where are we going next? Let's do this. No, what does Peter say? He said, Savior, Master, depart from me. I'm a man that is unclean. Your dwelling place cannot be with me, for I am unclean. And why is this? Why is this the normal experience whenever we try to interact and get close to God? Why do we feel like we can't live um, without them, but yet we can't live with them? Why is this our, our experience? Well, the Bible actually gives us a very, very rock-solid answer to that predicament within the, within the, uh, the life, of, life of you and I. And that, uh, that explanation is this, is that there are two foundations. There are two foundations, or the, there's two bedrocks to us as humanity. Number one, that we're made for him. And number two, and this is tragic, but it's true, we want to be him. The two foundations, the two bedrocks of our humanity are this. We are made for him, and yet we want to be him. See, in the Garden of Eden, the Bible lays out that we are made to be with God, to walk with him, to enjoy him, to delight in him. We are supposed to uh, long for God the same way that a bee longs for a flower. The same way that a lost man in the desert longs for water. The same way, uh, that's the exact same way that we are to long for the face of God. So there's a part of us that is drawn, drawn to God. You're like, I'm curious. I need him. I want, I want him. How, how can I be close, close to him? But there's another foundation. This other foundation is that God has made us the way that he's made us as rational, relational creative, powerful beings, and we chose to go our own way. We chose to go our own way. We decided to go our own way. And Carl Truman talks about in his um, best-selling book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which was published in 2020 and is already outdated, says that what we're seeing in our cultural moment is the fulfillment through technology and everything to um, really ratify within ourselves, that we can be anything we want to be, that we can be our own creator. We can completely reinvent ourselves. Everything is at our fingertips. You don't feel this way, you can be that way. You don't feel like you want to do this, you can go and do this. And you can have radical shifts, radical shifts for the first time in all of creation to where uh, the rise and triumph of the modern self is actually just the fulfillment of what the Bible said, that we want to be God. We want to be our own creator. And what happens whenever we get close to God? Whenever we have these two foundations, whenever we get close to a real creator, we get terrified. We sense our inadequacy, right? We sense our unworthiness. We sense that we have actually fallen short. And don't you see that we can't live with God and we can't live without God. We have two foundations in our life. We are made for him, and yet we desperately want to be him. We desperately want to be him. Why are you and I stagnating in our walk with God? Why do we stagnate in our walk with God? Is it not this? Is it not this that we get close to him and we feel unworthy so we back, so we back off? And we begin to ask questions like, what if God doesn't, what if he doesn't follow through? What if I obey him, put the blank check of my life before the table, and he gives me a life of, gives me a life of hardship? 
What if he doesn't give me the influence I want? What if he doesn't give me the plane that I want? What if he doesn't give me the life that I want? What if he doesn't give me the peace and the security that I want? Can I really trust him? Can I really trust this God? And so what do we do? We give him the Heisman and we keep him at bay. And this is why, and there's this perpetual cycle. I want to be close to him, and yet it's scary, so I recoil away from him. Yet I want to be close with him again because I was made for him, and yet I, it's scary, so I recoil away. And this goes over and over and over again. You see, on the one hand, we, we, want, to, we want to be with him. On the other hand, we're afraid. If we get too close, he might let us down, and we just teeter-totter back and forth and back and forth. But notice, notice how Jesus engages with us. Notice how he engages with the disciples whenever they're afraid to be in the presence of him. He says, I am. He declares who he is. And he says, I am the great I am. Therefore, whenever you come to me, you need to come to me in a certain way. You need to come to me with, uh, with a sense of reverence and respect I'm not going to come to you, says the Lord, according to your own preferences. And you say, Cody, that doesn't sound good. That's some loving. That doesn't sound compassionate. No, you're wrong. He is good. He's the I am. He already is at the pinnacle of good. He already is at the pinnacle of being loving. He already is at the pinnacle of being merciful. He already is compassionate. He already is kind. He already is just. He already is pure. He already is all of these things. And listen to me. If you think, oh, I don't know, that's not settling with me. All real love demands our conformity towards flourishing. If you want to be in a relationship with someone, if you want to be in a, husbands and wives, y'all know this to be true. When, When do things begin to feel distant? When you're not pursuing the other person and demanding that they flourish. What is, what is at the crux of most of our disagreements in married life? It's that you are doing something that is stealing away life which is truly life. Either to our family or to yourself or to me. And I hate that. And so what do we do? We sharpen each other to say real love, what it does is it makes us, and makes us demand that we flourish. This is what God does with us. He's demanding. He's demanding that we flourish. He's demanding our conformity to his will, not so that he, he can place us under his thumb, so that we will thrive and grow and flourish. That's the reasons for the, obedi- the, the obedience that he calls us towards. He demands our flourishing. He's not, he's not trying to be a killjoy. He's trying to give us real life. Jesus wants you to change for your flourishing, and that's it. He wants you to let him in the boat of your life, in the boat of your life. Is that what you want, or do you want control over your life? Do you want Jesus in the boat of your life, or do you want control over the rudder? Because, listen, you cannot have both. See, can't I have a little bit of Jesus and all the control over my life? You'll be miserable. You'll be absolutely miserable. And so many of us are stagnating because we're just like, I don't feel like God's upholding his side of the bargain. That's because you never let go of the rudder. You've never surrendered everything over to him. And whenever you don't give everything over to him, he's saying, I don't come into people's lives that way. I'm Lord of all, including your life. I'm, in, I'm Lord of everything. He must be the captain. And so, first thing we see from this passage is that Jesus is holy. The second thing 
And this is really, really fast. That was kind of a long one. This is going to be a really short one, all right? Is Jesus is powerful. Jesus is very powerful. Now, I don't want to insult you. This is, this is very obvious from this passage, right? And so let me just uh, kind of remind you of some of the Old Testament passages that allude to this. In Psalm chapter 29, verse 3, through basically to the end, let me just read some of the things that um, God declares about himself. It says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is filled with, is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the, voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. He sits enthroned over the flood. He sits enthroned as king. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his, his people with peace. See all the overtones of the storm, the flood. He's in charge of it all. He's in charge of it all. That power on this earth is just on loan from God. Now, power in nature is not swirling about chaotically. It is on loan from God. Whenever Jesus talks to Nicodemus, you, you know where the wind comes from? Do you know where the wind comes from, Nicodemus? He's like, no. No one knows where the wind comes from. I don't even think today. Does anyone know where the wind comes from? I, I, I think that's a mystery that, that God has placed on this earth so that we would uh, kind of marvel, where does it come from? Why? And why does it happen? Someone can say pressure systems. And I'm like, where does the pressure systems come from? You know, we don't know. We don't know. All the power here on this earth is on loan from our great God. It's on loan from God. And what Jesus is saying is I'm that God. Whenever he's walking on water here, and whenever he says to the storm, after he gets into the boat, be still, he's saying, hey, the, what the Old Testament was talking about, I'm him. I'm him. The Lord of everything, I am him. I am him. Jesus is saying that I am this God. I am this God. And so, what we see here. Uh, to kind of conclude and wrap up that Jesus is powerful, is he wants us to take in his power into, into our lives. And in verse 21, it says this, they were glad once they recognized him to take him into the boat, and immediately the, the boat uh, was at the land in which they were going. You see, Jesus is Lord of the chaos. And he can be Lord of your chaos as well if you let him into your boat. You see, Jesus isn't just Lord of the blessings where if you come to him, maybe he will bless you. This isn't health, wealth, prosperity, nonsense. The Bible is communicating that Jesus is in charge of everything. He's in charge of it all. And he wants to be in charge of your life too. And so I encourage you, run to him. Run to him. We look to so many things to give us power, peace, security. Is the first thing you're running to God? Are you going before him in a quiet, dark place with your knees on the floor and your nose and your tears hitting the carpet and saying, God, I need you. I don't know what this life is going to bring. I don't know what storm's coming next, but I need you. He's a God of power. Turn to him. Turn to him as the God of power. Number three, Jesus Jesus teaches us in this passage that he is your teacher, that he is your teacher. He's a mentor. 
Mark, in his retelling of the event, says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. This is right after. It's right after. They, uh, he just fed all of the 5,000. And then he tells them, go get in the boat. You think Jesus knew that this storm was coming? I think 1,000% he knew the storm was coming. And he tells them to go into the storm anyways. God, why? That's what I brought up earlier. Why, why would you do this, God? If Jesus is, the, is your Savior, why would he sometimes send us into stormy waters, into a place where he seems absent? Why would he send, this, send us into a place that is hard? You wonder why? Because Jesus is a good mentor. He's a good coach. He's a good teacher. And look, we've got a lot of coaches in this room, right? Can I hear you, coaches? Are you here today? All right, we've got a co- couple of coaches. What, what happens, coaches, whenever one of your athletes says, you know what, coach, don't feel like running today. Really don't feel like shooting my free throws. Don't feel, you know what, I just need a personal day. Is the best thing to do for that athlete is just to coddle them? Yep, go ahead, take, take your personal day. No, no, what is a coach trying to do? Trying to get you to win the game. And there's going to be some sacrifices. There's going to be, there's going to be some places of suffering. But, he, but a good coach doesn't overburden you. He takes you to a place to where you can tear down, tear down the old and rebuild new and afresh. That's what Jesus does with us. Sometimes he, he, sometimes he stops the storm, but sometimes he takes us through the storm. Why? To grow us into maturity. And look at me. I know some of y'all are just like, I'm in the storm and it's been too long. It's been too long to be in this storm. Listen to me. Listen to me. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. What is this life? 70 years? 80 years? 90 years? Wait on the Lord. He is a good coach. He's a good mentor. You can trust him. You can trust him to be your mentor through the storm. Because notice what he said. Notice what he said whenever he talked to his disciples while he was walking on water. He didn't say, hey, guys, uh, take heart. Storm's going to be over in about four minutes, all right? So just hang in there. Yeah, yeah, hold, hold that line. Hold it, hold it. Is that what he said? No. No, he didn't say that. He didn't tell them, hey, guys, uh, take shelter over there. He didn't give them advice. What did he say? He magnified himself. Do you see this? Do you see what Jesus did? In the, in the middle of their storm, when they were terrified, he didn't minimize their pain. He didn't minimize their suffering, but he magnified who he was to them. And that's what God is doing through our pain, through our storms, through our suffering, is he doesn't minimize it. He doesn't say just buck up. He says, look to me. I'm trying to make myself even larger that you can depend on me even in the midst of this deep, dark pain. That's why God sends us into storms. That's why he sometimes sends us into chaos because he wants to look at us and say, trust me, I'm a, I am your God. You're looking at other things to give you peace, comfort, and security. The Bible calls these things idols. The Bible calls these things idols. And these are the things that we look at to give us a sense of hope. These are the things that we look at to give. And, and, and these are not actually bad things. The Bible a lot of times doesn't say that an idol is a bad thing. Tim Keller says it best. Idolatry means turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. 
an ultimate thing. So money is not bad. Money's not a bad thing, but whenever you make money your ultimate thing, it becomes a bad God. Uh, you know, parenting and raising your children is not a bad thing. But when that is your identity to where you rise and fall based on the obedience of your children, uh, that be, then it becomes an ultimate thing, and that is a bad God. That is a bad controller of your life. When, when love and romance is, is the, the thing that you look to for peace and security and hope, Listen, listen, there's storms that can come into love and romance. For all you single people, it, it could be the storm of no dates, you know, for a while. It could be the storm of loneliness. It could be the storm of the thought of maybe I will never find that person. Listen, there's, there's things going on but whenever we, that are good things in our lives that we should pursue. However, whenever we make them our identity, whenever we make them the ultimate thing, they turn into bad. They turn into bad gods. Bad leaders. And so let me, let me retool this uh, analogy of idols in this passage by saying that uh, an idol is kind of like a, a life raft. A life raft. They were most likely in a 12-passenger little rowing boat. Mark and Matthew says that they were rowing and they were struggling against the tide whenever the storm came in. And so uh, they, they imagine that idols in your life are just kind of a, a life raft. And life rafts are great, right? Uh, really, really useful. Um, but here's the thing. Whenever you're in the life raft of your life, you're the captain. And what Jesus is calling you to is to get into the safe and secure boat where he's the captain. He wants his disciples to let him in. To let him in. And whenever he gets into the boat, guess what? He takes over. He is in charge. And so I encourage you to think through this. Why? Why would God sometimes send send storms into your life raft to show you, to show you that you're building your life not on the sure, strong foundation which is found in Christ, but he will send your life raft into a storm to show you that there's another way. There's another way that you can be operating and living. He does this to Job, right, in the Old Testament. Do you remember Job, the story of Job? Uh, Satan stands before God and says, have you or actually God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan looks at him and goes, Job isn't really worshiping you. See, Job is a popular guy. He's a wealthy man. Job has a nice family. Those are the things he's actually worshiping. Those are the things he has placed ultimate hope in. If you take those things away from him, God, says Satan, then, then he will curse you to your face. And what happens? God says, you can do this and that, but no, no more. And so God sends the storm into Job's life. He sends a, sends a storm to, that kills his family through a tornado. He sends a storm that kills all of his livestock, which represented his wealth. He sends, a, he sends another storm to where uh, he had disease and, and sickness all over his body. And though Job, he struggled mightily at the end, what Job got was he said, Whom have I in heaven but you? I will praise the Lord all the days of my life. Yes, he struggled, but the storm revealed, the storm actually revealed that he was standing on the sturdy rock, that he had not built his faith on sand. He built it on the steady rock. Because that's what, and remember the, the, the parable of the two houses that Jesus told? Sand and bedrock. Where are you going to build your life? 
And he says, what reveals where you're building your life is the storm. It's not if storms will come, it's when storms will come. God sends us into storms to show us what our faith is actually standing on. Is it on beauty? Well, there's a storm of aging for that. Are you building your life on your career? Well, there's the, the storm of an economic recession, or there's the storm of someone better than you and you're uh, superior to you in your class or something like that. Are you building on love? We already talked about that. There's the storm of singleness. There's the storm, there's the storm of no dates. There's the storm of, uh, of missing out, of missing out um, what you ultimately desire. But all these things are really just revealing what you're trusting in. And what Jesus, the rock of ages, says is climb in to me. I am your healer. Let me in. I am your rescuer. I am your captain. I am your God. I am. Do not be afraid. And if you want Jesus to be your teacher, you have to understand that Jesus will send you send storms into your life. And sometimes he deals with those storms in different ways. Sometimes he looks at those storms and says, peace, be still. Where we go to God and we say, God, this is more than I can bear. And he says, I love you, my child, my daughter, my son. I will relieve you from this. And other times he wants us to grow into maturity, like a good coach. He wants us to grow into, mat into maturity. And so, even other times, he'll do this. Whenever Peter, uh, this is talked about in Matthew, whenever Peter sees Jesus, what does Peter do? Oh, bold Peter, you know, he's a go-getter, that guy. He steps out of the boat himself. And what we see is, is Jesus' power over the storm is transferred to Peter as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. What happened whenever he took his eyes off? He began to sink. He began to sink. And what is that teaching us? It's teaching us that through the storm, we have to hold on to Jesus. If we, if we throw away that rudder, if we throw away uh, those oars, and we do not hold on powerfully to Jesus, that's the worst thing that we could do. That's the worst thing we could do because all it will do is cause us to sink and to learn the lessons that he has for us in this life slower and slower. And so I encourage you, are you holding on to Jesus? Are you trusting him in the storm? Because Jesus wants to turn you, listen to me, Jesus ultimately wants to turn you into who you really want to be. He wants to turn you into who you desire to be. He wants to turn you into a wonderful person. He wants to turn you into a person full of joy and yet empathetic to those who mourn. Mourns with those who mourn and weeps with those who weep, but yet is just known overall as just a super joyful person. He wants to turn you into a person of courage, boldness, and conviction, and yet tender and understanding about different ideas and different people and welcomes them into their home. He wants to turn you into a fearless person, yet extraordinarily humble. He wants to turn you into a person filled with love and yet devout in purity. Christian friends, are you trusting that the Lord is carrying you through your storms and using your storms to transform who you are as a person? Are you filtering your doubts through the lordship of Jesus? Are you filtering the lens of your life all through? Jesus is not just Lord of blessing. He's the Lord of it 
all. And you might be saying, Cody, I don't know. I don't know if any of this is real. I don't know if any of this is true. How can I? How can I know if this is true? Well, I want to encourage you with this. What the disciples had to do, had to do, is they had to let Jesus into the life, life raft. He had to let, they had to let him into the boat. And whenever they, he got into the boat, the storm was calmed. The storm of your life, the chaoticness of your life was calmed. And if you're a non-Christian in this room, I would, my call to you would just be this. Have you let Jesus into the boat of your life? Yeah, I, I get it. it. It's fun. It's fun to be the captain of your life, life, uh, life raft. But Jesus is the captain of everything. Let him in. Give him the rudder of your life, and you can trust that he will take you faithfully to your destination. Let's pray.